Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Happy Pride Month. We're celebrating with a very special guest, award-winning YA novelist Bill Konigsberg. Bill is the author of Openly Straight, The Porcupine of Truth, and most recently, Honestly Ben. Bill's novels have garnered several impressive awards, including a Stonewall Book Award, the Sid Fleischman Award for Humor, and a Penn Center USA Literary Award. Later on in the broadcast, two of my scholastic colleagues will join me in the studio, librarian Demosa Weber Bay and art director Jeremy Goodwin. We'll talk about Bill's attendance at a recent Scholastic Employee Book Club and the significance of his novels, which help all young readers understand what it feels like to grow up gay in America. Welcome, Bill. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. Could you tell our listeners about Honestly Ben and how it picks up the story from your earlier novel, Openly Straight? You know, Openly Straight was meant to be a standalone novel. It was the story of Rafe, uh, who is a boy from Boulder, Colorado. He's openly gay. He is tired of the label gay, and he just wants to be a kid. He just wants to be a normal kid. So he goes across the country to an all-boys boarding school where he recreates himself without the label gay. What happens to him at that school, one of the major things that happens is that he has this bromance with Ben Carver. And because the book was written as a – not a romance. It's a coming-of-age story. I ended the book as it needed to end, which is when Rafe has had his epiphany book over. A lot of people read it as a romance and they were livid and basically I picked up the story to give people some closure on the story. People kept saying, what happens at the end? What happens with Ben and Rafe? So this is my gift to those people. (laughs) I heard that you also have a bridge book between Openly Straight and Honestly Ben. What has the response been to that? I think people have really enjoyed the the bridge book. It's a it's a small story. I mean, it's a it's a Christmas Hanukkah story. The the point was to create something that brought people would remind people because Openly Straight was released in 2013 and it's now 2017. So we wanted to remind people of the characters, and I just wanted to have a short story in which the two characters are doing the same thing at the same time across the country. That was my basic purpose. The characters of Ben and Rafe are both 17. What is it about that age and what happened for you when you were 17? It's it's amazing that every single one of my characters are 17. I, I do not really understand why all of my characters have to be 17, but they are. For me, I think it was just this white, hot time in my life. I was right in the middle of coming out. Uh, And that was a really traumatic experience for me. To figure out that I was different than my family of origin was traumatic. And it changed my experience of where I belonged from I belong in this family to I don't know where I belong. 
So I think because writing is my chosen art form, I just go right back to that area where, where everything was happening for me, and I just work out in my own way my own stories. Could you talk a little bit about, in addition to feeling perhaps alienated from your fa- family, what it was like societally at the time? I came out in New York City in the 1980s. This was probably the worst possible time to come out. I mean, I was right smack dab in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. All I saw were adults, adult versions of me who were dying. So I didn't consequently have much of a feeling about my own future. And I had no role models. I had nobody out there who I thought, oh, I want to be like this person. That just didn't exist at the time, even though it was New York City. I, When I started to figure out I was gay, I went to the library in my high school, and it's a pretty liberal school. There were no books, basically, about with the word homosexuality. There were just books that – I think there was one that was basically said that homosexuality was – a disorder. So that meant they had a book from previous to 1972 in the library because that's when that uh, changed. So I had a lot of things, a, a lot of sources telling me bad things. Certainly the people I was hanging out with, and I was a jock kid, I was an athlete, and I was on the baseball team. So what I was hearing a lot of was the word, I'm going to say the word, fag, I was hearing a ton. I had the sense of who gay people were, and it was completely not how I saw myself. Uh, you know, th- that gays were effeminate, gays were crazy, gays were all of these things. So it was it was really challenging. I felt very, very alone at that time. Now, it is interesting that both Rafe and Ben are gay and they're jocks. We don't see that combination often, at least not in literature. Could you describe what it was like to create these characters? They're so natural for me. You know, I, I just, I wind up writing characters who are parts of me. Rafe is is really very much like me. He's annoying. <laughs> uh, what else is he? he? He's a little bit sarcastic. He's sweet. Um, you know, Rafe's voice feels very comfortable for me. And so it really, by the way, hurt my feelings when people would be like, oh, I hate Rafe. But anyway, that's another story for another time. The character of Ben was much less like me. Ben is stoic, reserved, quiet, and I really had to kind of push to get there. It really is not who I am. I am a New York Jew. I say everything that's on my mind all the time. I have this sense that my emotions matter to other people. They don't. So that's how I go through my life. And Ben, for Ben, I think knowledge and information is power. For our listeners who may not have read the book, Rafe is from Boulder, Colorado, which is really a fun detail. Ben is from the town of Alton in New Hampshire. Could you tell us how you chose that town and what it was like to spend time there? Yeah, I chose Alton, New Hampshire while writing Openly Straight by opening Google Maps. That's basically how I found it. And maybe I took an extra step and went to Wikipedia just to see if there were farms and farmland there. That's basically what I did. I hadn't thought that I was writing anything more than a standalone, so it didn't matter where Ben was from until this book started to happen. And I booked a flight and I drove up there uh, from Boston and uh, I got somebody from the 
historical society for Alton to take me around and show me the town. And he hooked me up with a woman who ran, ran a farm there. And that farm became Ben's home. So it was really interesting. Now, I'm a New York City boy. So for me, probably also for Rafe, I grew up thinking that chicken came from the grocery store. And I'm still not sure that's not true. So it was interesting to experience somebody who grew up in a very different way. Does that New England stoicism inform Ben's character at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ben is is definitely a New England boy. Uh, One thing that I didn't think of, I must say, when I started to write the book was accent. Uh, I didn't think about it. I thought about it in general in Openly Straight, the reason that the kids don't speak with an accent is because they're generally wealthy kids, and that's those are not the people who have the New England accent for the most part. However, Ben is not a wealthy kid. So in reality, if we're being real, Ben probably ought to have an accent, but he doesn't. He throws the word wicked around a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> once or twice, wicked. <laughs> uh, as you know, there is so much discussion in YA literature about the importance of bringing new voices into the fold and allowing all kids to see themselves reflected in fiction. How do the books you've written fill a void that you felt growing up? I think that that's really the purpose of them in in general. I didn't see those books growing up. I didn't know that young adult literature was a thing. There certainly weren't a whole lot of books with gay characters. And I felt that void. I mean, I definitely didn't see myself in a book until I was about 18 and I read Uh, Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin, which was not a young adult novel. It was the first time I saw anything that I thought, oh, that's a little bit like me. I didn't have those books. So definitely when I started to write from a young adult voice, it was very much central to my thoughts that I was going to be giving voice to characters that would help kids see themselves. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I just was at a talk here at Scholastic where three people came up to me and said just that. That, that they saw themselves in these characters. And that's probably the best possible feeling you can get to hear that as an author. Which authors did you read when you were growing up and how did they shape who you are? I read a lot of adult fiction um, or what I perceived to be adult fiction at the time. I read a lot. I did read Judy Bloom, and I loved those books. Uh, absolutely adored them. Another author that I read that might be a surprise but is absolutely in my voice is Jay McInerney. Uh, I, I absolutely have a little Jay McInerney going on in me, and, and we all emulate what we read. I mean, it's it's all part of it. Uh, other writers are that sometimes surprise people would be Alice Walker and Toni Morrison. People think Bill Konigsberg, but yeah, that's what I was reading. Great. You were a sports writer in an earlier life. Oh, yes. Well, the great columnist Jimmy Breslin talked about the visual sensibility that comes with sports writing. And I wondered if you could tell us how being a sports writer has influenced your YA novels. All of my novels have sports in them. And that's just because I – it's like involuntary at this point. It's part of my life. It's part of how I see people. Uh, And it's definitely my experience growing up. So one thing that I have to say, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, but I think it's true. One thing that I have over some other – gay male authors in this genre um, is that I did play a ton of sports growing up. And so I have that voice 
pinned in my ear. It does not go away. So it plays a role in every one of my books. There, there are some sort of dudish characters on the side. <laughs> I think there's also something about having to describe action that other people can't see that brings it alive more. Oh, yes, absolutely. Growing up as a sports fan and a sports player, a lot of what we did was we would narrate our own stories. He's rounding third, you know, the play at the plate. So I was doing that from a young age, and I wanted to be a sportscaster. So, yeah, absolutely. Breslin also advised writers to, quote, go to the loser's locker room for a good story. Would you say that you've done that in Honestly, Ben? (laughs) It's funny. When you say that, it made me think of that being my job for a while. When I was at the Associated Press and I'd cover the New York Mets, there would be two people there. And indeed, I would be sent to the loser's locker room because I was that guy. So yeah, I never thought of Ben's story that way exactly, but I love it. I love that you bring it up. We would love for you to read an excerpt from Honestly, Ben. I sometimes read right from the beginning the stuff that's about Ben and being a Czech dumpling. Yeah, that's great. According to the swim instructor at the Guilford gym, I had the worst buoyancy of any human he'd ever seen. My brother Luke and I got one lesson each as our Christmas present, mostly because Luke wanted to learn. I wasn't so sure I needed to add swimming to my life, as I'd gotten along just fine without it all these years. Also, it was three degrees outside, so the idea of being in a bathing suit, even inside, was not appealing. I offered to give my lesson to Luke, but he wanted us to try to do it together, so I gave it a try. The instructor, maybe two years older than me, had a thick beard, like you could hide a full-grown blue jay in there. You don't have to be afraid of the water. All people somewhat float. It's archenemy's law, he said, and I resisted the urge to correct him by saying Archimedes. When you attend a fancy boarding school, it's best not to be a know-it-all on your winter break back in rural New Hampshire. He got the class to kick our way to the deep end while holding on to kickboards, and then he took them away, and we all clung to the pool's edge, as if we were hanging over the Grand Canyon. He modeled treading water, which looked like riding a bike, except if you fall, you drown. He showed us that if we somehow fell to the bottom, we could use our arms and our legs to propel us upward. Then, one at a time, he told us to let go of the edge. You'll see how your natural buoyancy kicks in and your fear will just melt away, he promised. When it was my turn to tread water, I did what the guy said. I let go. I sunk directly to the bottom of the pool in three seconds flat. My butt hit the bottom. I bounced up maybe a foot, and then I resunk, like a stone, like a thick, Czechoslovakian stone. There was something almost comfortable about sitting on the pool floor, even with all the chlorinated water I'd swallowed and the lack of oxygen down there. Like for a simple moment, nothing was pulling at me. I was just Ben at the bottom of the pool, and I opened my eyes, saw the light blue world around me, and thought, yes, this. A part of me actively chose not to push myself up to the surface. Then I felt my instructor's frenetic arms under my armpits, and I launched myself up with my legs, and we drifted the six or so feet back to the surface. What are your bones made of, he asked, once his gasping for air subsided, and I was safely clinging to the side again. I wiped the water from my eyes. I've learned from a lifetime of being a carver that questions don't always require a response. 
Science classes have taught me that my bones are made of collagen and calcium, the same stuff as other people's bones. The only difference is that I am large, like six foot two, 215 pounds, and I am Czech. We are a dense people. My mom's specialty is Czech dumplings, the densest food known to man. They're flour, milk, mashed potatoes and eggs, made into a loaf and boiled, and their general purpose is soaking up gravy. One could build a well-insulated shack out of them. I am convinced that in many, many ways, buoyancy included, I am a Czech dumpling. Lovely passage. When I read it, I felt so sad for Ben and just that feeling almost of, of not wanting to be here or wanting to stay submerged. I'm wondering if you've heard from any young fans who've read your book, especially gay kids who maybe saw themselves and found a new way to breathe. I think a ton of people saw themselves in Ben. I, I think hundreds of people wrote me to say, Ben is me. Yeah. Yeah. And that conversation he has with his father where he's just pushing down his words even and is, is so painful that it hurts his chest. Yes. For me, that was a very painful uh, section to write because that's really my husband. And, y you know, you get to know somebody for 14 years and you know their pain. And I was writing from his place of pain. And that's a challenging thing to do. Yeah. What are you working on now, Bill? Can you tell us? I'd be happy to tell you. I'm working on a novel called it, – it finally has a title. I'm so excited. It's called The Magic of What Happens. That is so untrue. I'm going to tell you the real title now. The title is The Music of What Happens. And uh, that comes from a Seamus Heaney poem. And it's a story of two boys in uh, one summer in Mesa, Arizona, who fall in love while working on a food truck. And it is more of a straight-up romance, although there is plenty of angst and stuff in it. Wonderful. We look forward to reading that as well. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, here are Scholastic Librarian Demosa Weber Bay and Art Director Jeremy Goodwin. Hi, guys. It's great to have you on the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Yay. Hi there. It's great to be here. Demosa, I'm going to start with you. Could you give our listeners a little background about the Employee Book Club? When did it begin and how many employees take part? Actually, the library ran an Employee Book Club years ago where they were reading more adult titles, and then it stopped. And when my predecessor, Jessica, um, restarted it in 2013, she decided to focus on scholastic trade titles. And we actually have four... Uh, kind of justifications that we have for the Employee Book Club and its existence as a program. And so one is that it's an opportunity for people, different departments at Scholastic to meet each other and, and across divisions, and that it exposes some of the folks who don't work in trade publishing to editors and authors and publicists to kind of enlighten how the publishing process works. Uh, sometimes, even though you work at a publishing house, you may not know all of the kind of intricate details of what goes on to bring a book from manuscript to, to final copy on the store shelf. It also makes employees more familiar with scholastic content, just so that you're a brand ambassador wherever you're going. And finally, that it potentially gives people ideas for different projects, maybe not necessarily with the particular book that we're looking at, but you may, in conversation with other employees, have an idea for something that you could take back to your department or division. 
Wonderful. Jeremy, you're a relative newcomer at Scholastic. Could you tell us about your experience in the book club so far? Exactly as Demosa said. As a librarian, she's been, her enthusiasm was what brought me to the book club. And for many of Yay. my projects, <laughs> I ended up going there because I wanted to familiarize myself with the content of Scholastic. Terrific. In the most recent book club, we had Bill Konigsberg, the author, actually attend the meeting. What made that so special and how did that come about? Well, it was particularly special for our employee book club because he's the first author who came to join us after we restarted, and that was in 2013 with Openly Straight. Having him come back this second time to discuss the companion novel, Honestly Ben, was special because there are a lot of people who were there for the first discussion and were looking forward to seeing him again and kind of picking his brain to see how he made the choices he did to tie up all the loose ends where he, he left us hanging in 2013 yes. with Rafe and Ben and we're dying to find out how he decided to conclude it. He left all of his fans around the world hanging, so that was a bit <laughs> problematic for him. Yeah, and the other reason to me that it was really important and special is because we often talk about children being able to see themselves in a book, and this was an opportunity for some of our employees also who are LGBTQ to see themselves in a book. There were employees who came to me as we were going through the process of reading the book and said, this is one of the first times that I've read a story that I could identify with. This kind of book didn't exist when I was a teenager. So that just being able to provide that experience, not just for children, but to also bring that to people that I work with is something that was unexpected with this particular book, but ended up happening. And it was really, it made me feel like I'm doing my part as a librarian for my peers. I see. That's one of the reasons, Jeremy, we invited you. You had such moving testimony yourself about your own experiences and your experience of reading Honestly, Ben. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so th this, um, I feel like, was a really uh, a formative coming-of-age story. Um, and, you know, like, I feel like it's almost trite to say that, you know, growing up as a gay teen or a member of the LGBT community, in uh, high school is a tough environment to be in. You know, it's it's a very tough environment. And I, I recall growing up where I would um, sort of hover around certain sections of the, of the library or uh, bookstore looking for content that I could relate to that could tell my story. It's like one of the challenges is you feel so alone at times. And so I, I thought this was a great book to show a spectrum of characters um, who are LGBT, uh, Q, uh, I, <laughs> IA. <laughs> yeah, IA, and sort of give them a voice and a place that young readers could relate to. Demosa, what was it like to have Bill in the room at the book club? Do you think people felt extra pressure to say, oh, this is a great book? <laughs> I think that definitely people want to be polite and, you know, show respect to the author. But it also changes the conversation because it really becomes this Q&A almost where you get an opportunity to try to uncover the meaning behind the names of places, choices that the author made. And sometimes you get a backstory about what the author was planning to do or had going on in a first draft. And then the reasons that they made to, to change it or to um, modify the story as they kept going. And it's interesting because a lot of the times when we have an author or an editor, 
um, you'll see where there's something that the, the the people in the book club kind of notice and in the book, and they ask questions about it. Oh, what was going on here? I was a little confused about why this character did this when this happened. And then sometimes you'll find out that that is something that the author and the editor also were struggling with as they were putting the story together. And you get to hear the reasoning for where you know what direction they decided to take. Uh, I think that for the author too, sometimes they may not, you know, Bill may not have put as much deep academic thought in as he was going because he's writing from the heart. Whereas we are sitting there like there's this, you know, symbolism that I noticed in chapter three. And then everybody turns to that page, starts reading it out loud. And actually there was in this particular book club meeting, one of our coworkers, she was talking about a section of the book that just read completely true to her as the voice of a teenager. And he asked her if she would read that section to him. And she's like, I would love to, you know, so she opens (laughs) it up and such a special moment to have somebody sitting there at the author's request, reading the section of the chapter to them that moved them and to have that follow-up conversation afterwards with all of us about the way that the words come together and bring us to tears or happiness or laughter. Jeremy, what about you? I thought it was interesting that Ben is actually quite the young historian in this book. He's always making these references to World War II and wars and all of these things. And I I had made a comment about how I thought that there was an intended allusion to Ben's character and the specific instances of World War II. One, one for example, was uh, the wall, the barrier wall that the French created to protect themselves from the Germans. And, you know, I, I perceive that as to be an immediate relationship with how he was protecting himself by not telling people that he was gay. And so um, I thought it was funny that uh, Bill Konigsberg said, oh, I didn't even think about that, that that might have a specific connection there. But that's an interesting point. And I, I thought that that was really uh, a fun experience. It was cool to see how he was surprised by the way people had interpreted different scenes. And I also thought it was so moving when he himself, who he grew up before you did, Jeremy, and had nothing and felt so shunned that he could have the, you know so much power. He wrote this beautiful book or these beautiful books and was giving kids this opportunity to be able to see themselves. See themselves, and I I think also for students who aren't part of these particular communities so that they can have a more empathic sensibility on how to approach other people who are not like them. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. And he, in I think maybe his acceptance speech for the Stonewall, he talked about a young man who saw the books that Bill's written and some all other offers as his friends and a, a moment where he is, his parents had taken the books away from him. I guess they realized what the topic of the books were and how he, what he expressed to Bill is that it was like having his friends taken away. Uh, and mm. so that just what Jeremy is speaking about to have something that just validates your experience for the children that are teenagers also that are picking up these books. And then in the room, in the moment for the different members of the book club who had an opportunity to share their experience and the meaning of the book with the author directly there. Now, Demosa, you presented Bill with a signed book, which is a nice twist. How did that come about? 
This time we were reading Honestly Ben, which was the companion to Openly Straight. However, in between these two stories, Bill wrote The Porcupine of Truth, which won the Stonewall Award last year, not this year past, but the year before. And when I read that book in particular, I just was so taken by it because I really appreciated that he had given a young black woman a story, this Aisha, who's one of the main characters in the book, and that he'd given her such a good story. And also, I identified with Carson, who was the kind of the voice through which the story is told, because Carson, he runs into Aisha early on, and she's homeless, which is the case of many you know teenagers that are um, kind of pushed out by their families for different reasons. And he immediately decides that he wants to help her, but he doesn't quite know how to do it. And me, myself, having made a pledge when I was in high school and college that I was going to be an ally, sometimes you feel like you want to help, but you don't know if you're doing the right thing, if you're saying the right thing, if you are kind of overdoing it or underdoing it. So I really appreciated that Carson was just doing the best that he could. And sometimes Aisha, as the secondary character, she constantly checks Carson and corrects him and and basically speaks up as a secondary character in a book and says, hey, it's not all about you. This story, this journey is also about me. So I appreciated that the overall was going with the story and just that kind of nuance of a secondary character constantly speaking up, interrupting the main character and being like, hey, I have a, a mission and a, a place and a piece of this journey as well. It's not just what your goal is here. So I really appreciated that. And when I saw the book won the Stonewall Award at ALA, tears came to my eyes because it was such a special book and that the committee had found it and gave it recognition just really meant a lot to me. So I got a copy of the book from Arthur A. Levine imprint and asked different people at Scholastic if they would sign it, kind of like a card, congratulating him for winning Stonewall. What a lovely gesture. Now, you talked a little bit about why you relate so much to Bill's work. What was it about Honestly Ben that drew you to the text? In particular, this year, I started the year, unfortunately, reading a book I didn't enjoy. (laughs) So then then the second... The horror, the horror. Right. (laughs) Disappointing. I had set new reading goals, and the first one was, oh, this is not so exciting. So then I opened up Honestly Ben and started reading it and just immediately fell into place. The voice, it was comfortable. The way that Bill puts feelings that you have that you don't know how to express into words, that... I was like, why didn't I start 2017 (laughs) this book? Why did I, you know, give the other one space? Um, But... Beyond that, the you know what I was talking about with um, you know being an ally just you know immediately you know came to mind again because most recently I had read the Porcupine of Truth before that, and then I think that one of the things that's interesting about both Ben and Rafe is that they don't want to be labeled, and so in openly straight, Rafe doesn't want to be labeled as being gay. He wants to experience what it's like when people just, you know, meet him and don't have that as something that they associate with him. How would they react to him? How would they take him in or, you know, hang out with him if he was just one of the crowd? And then um, Ben in this story, you know, he was very quiet in the first story. So we really get to see what he's thinking. And he also doesn't want to be labeled. So even though he's going through this new experience with Rafe, and he's also experimenting with dating a young woman, he's you know, refuses to be labeled specifically. So that is something that I I really appreciated about both of them, the way that they are exploring their identities and trying to, to, you know, to live with labels without labels and see where they fit. Jeremy, what about the book stands out to you now several weeks after you've read it? 
in reflection, I think about my own upbringing, and it's so true that when you're growing up as a gay teen, there's a whole period where you're concerned about all the people in your life, what they're going to think of you and, and really being able to fit in. And quite honestly, it feels hopeless. You feel like, in retrospect, it feels ridiculous because there are so many people in the LGBT world. But when you're in your own mind, you think that you're fully alone. And so what I thought was really interesting was that Bill Konigsberg actually bookends his story with this visual of Ben sinking in water. And so this this sense of hopelessness, I think, really defines this transition of the story. And in the end, he ends up finding that he can tread water a little bit. You know, things get better. And I, I think that um, as we connect and as we express ourselves, we're more able to survive as happy human beings. And float. What a lovely metaphor to end on. It's really inspiring that way. And, and I wish that I had the opportunity to read a book like this, that it was available for me when I was trying to find my way through a really challenging period of any young gay teen's experience. That's great. Thank you both so very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks again to our guests, Bill, Demosa, and Jeremy. To learn more about Bill's work, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com. To help other book lovers find us, please review and subscribe to Scholastic Reads on your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time. 